This is Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bobin Singh, the Executive Director of the Oregon Justice Resource Center. And I'm Eric Dietrich. I'm General Counsel at the Oregon Office of Public Defense Services. Today is March 3rd, um, and we're back with another episode of Trailblazing Justice. And this week, we had scheduled to talk about solitary confinement, but we actually rescheduled that conversation to later, I believe now in April, um, in large part because we were excited to be able to have, uh, for today's show, uh, DA John Hummel and DA Matt Ellis to join us in a conversation about the role of the DA, what a DA does, and some interesting aspects of um, uh, the profession, uh, criminal justice issues from a DA perspective, and then also some things that have been in the news, I think, this past year and some new criminal justice policies DAs are uh, are dealing with and Matt and John are both kind of uh, implementing and working on. Um, so I think this week we're just going to kind of bypass our news story and Eric and I sort of typical conversation about some aspect of the criminal system and just jump into a conversation with Matt and John. But Eric, how are you doing? How's the week been for you? Uh, it's it's been another week in which there was another crack in the state's public defense system, which we'll probably get to later in the show. And that's been occupying most of my time. But, you know, I know you and I have talked about the role of the D.A. before. And so it's it's nice to have two actual elected D.A.s on here to, to give us their take on their role. Yeah. So why don't we just go ahead and get started? Um, Matt, John, would you mind introducing yourselves? Matt, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Eric and uh, Bobbin, for having me on today. I am Matt Ellis. Uh, I am the Wasco County District Attorney. I was elected in 2020 and have been the elected DA for just over a year now. Everyone, I'm John Hummel, uh, Bobbin and Eric. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm the District Attorney in Deschutes County. I was elected in 2014. And uh, prior to that, I started my career way back as a public defender. And I know Matt was a criminal defense attorney, uh, you know, in his previous life. So I'm looking forward to a good uh, discussion about DA work, but also uh, indigent defense work and, and anything else we want to talk about. Let's do it. Great. Well, we have a lot of questions, but I think before we get started in the substance stuff, I mean, John, you'd mentioned that you worked in public defense before, but it'd be great to hear a little bit about both your backgrounds. Um, how you became, how you came to becoming a DA, um, and sort of what are those past experiences that may have like shaped, um, you know, how you're approaching your current position. So that way, people have some understanding of, you know, that you're just not a DA. I mean, I, I know you're about both of your backgrounds, and I know that's not the case. Like you both have, you know, really diverse backgrounds and experiences, and you know, obviously those things help shape, you know, how you come to the job. Um, so yeah, Matt, you want to give us a little bit more just about who you are and how you came to the position? Sure, sure. Uh, I actually started my career working up in Alaska. I have uh, an Alaska bar license right now that I'm not using. I'm not active up there, but I started up there working for the Office of Public Advocacy, which is a, uh, basically I was doing the first line of conflicts for the public defender agency. So it was just another public defender agency uh, up in Alaska. Uh, when I came to Oregon, uh, I worked briefly with a private firm before coming out to the Columbia River Gorge, um, where I worked for a private firm that had the main public defense contract out here in our jurisdiction um, with the Columbia River Gorge in Oregon. Our judicial district is five counties. It's Hood River, uh, Wasco, which is the Dalles. Sherman, Gillum, and Wheeler, which are the three least populous counties in the state. And we covered uh, that entire area doing public defense. I worked there for about seven or eight years uh, before I decided to uh, run for district attorney. And uh, I, I ran because it was nothing that I ever aspired to do with my career, but realizing after doing public defense work for so long that the person who has the most power in the system is not the defense attorney. It's not the judge. It's actually the district attorney, which uh, for reasons I'm sure we're, we're going to get into with this conversation today, that um, what the role of the district attorney is and uh, realizing that that there's uh, much more power to 
be able to uh, control what crimes get charged, how they get charged, sentencing, and not only that, but also power with the legislature to uh, try to push uh, push the agenda with criminal justice and criminal justice reform. And I know that uh, John, uh, who can get into a bit more of his background, was basically the original um, defense attorney that ran for DA and, and started this trend in the state of Oregon. And hopefully it will continue as we go forward with more of these elections coming up, because every one of us who has been a defense attorney has had to deal with a contested election. Um, I know John had a pretty tough contested election his first time. I definitely had a pretty nasty contested election back in 2020. Um, and it's uh, kind of bucking the old trend where it was just uh, the old old guard would they would do their term. They'd uh, run, run unopposed for as long as they want to until they retire. And then they'd pick their, uh, the person that would take, take over for them, give them a high five on the way out the door. And it would be uh, somebody else coming in without the voters having a decision on who their district attorney was going to be. So this is definitely a new trend with defense attorneys running. Um, and uh, John and I are two of them that have done it. Uh, go ahead, John. Similar. Yeah, similar background in 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 that I grew up in New York, though. That's a little different, but we're both from not native Oregonians. Right. And uh, there were corrupt cops in New York City, you know, breaking news like that. That's that shouldn't be new. Anyone who's seen Serpico, which is a you know a great movie and a, a great book from the 70s. And, and I saw that corruption. I didn't see uh, I was not treated improperly because guess what i'm white uh irish catholic and almost every cop in new york was white irish catholic so i was kind of one of them but i saw how they treated my friends who didn't look like me and that bothered me so i wanted to be a cop so i could become a police chief and clean it up and i went to college for that and when i was doing an internship in the local uh, da's office i saw the work of the public defenders and i said that's what I want to do. Uh, it was a small rural town in Virginia. And I sat at council table with the deputy DAs during trials. And I thought I was helping them. But I know now that college students don't really help during trials. And they let me just sit there as kind of a mascot. But when a suspect would be brought into court, everyone in that town was against them. The Town folks would show up because there wasn't much in town and they were all like, much to do in town and they were all against the suspect. The media was against the suspect. The police were. The prosecutor was. The judge was in that town. But there was always someone who would stand up for the suspect in your darkest day when everyone is against you. There was someone who would stand up and they would say, Your Honor, I represent Judy Smith. And that was the public defender. And I thought that's really cool. In your darkest day in this country, you'll always have someone to stand with you. You won't stand alone. And I said, all right, I'm going to be a public defender. So I went to law school. Uh, my plan was to you know, graduate, move to a state that I thought was the best state in the country, apply to every public defender office in the state and take the first job offer I got. Well, a few months before graduation, I, I looked at every state and Went to the library, looked at the encyclopedias. There wasn't the Internet then. So let's leaf through the encyclopedias, decided I think Oregon's that state. I had never been here, didn't know anyone from here, but loaded up the U-Haul, moved to Oregon, took the bar exam, applied to every public defender office in the state, got one in uh, a job in Bend. Now, that is pretty fortunate. I mean, it could have been Burns. I love my friends in Burns, uh, but, you know, it could have been a town not as good as Bend. I didn't know Bend then. Everyone moves here now because it's like the best mountain town, best beer town, best fly fishing. It's in all the magazines. No one talked about it then. But uh, I, I worked for uh, 12 years uh, doing public defense work, uh, most uh, you know, difficult and important work uh, there is. And then I left. I went overseas to work for President Carter and the Carter Center in Liberia, helping Liberians rebuild their justice sector after their brutal civil war. We trained public defenders, prosecutors, judges how to run a, a justice system. That was very um, important and rewarding work. And I came back and I worked in higher ed and, and healthcare policy. I thought I was done with the criminal law and the, some friends started encouraging me to run for DA. And I, I mean, I laughed the first few times. 
and said no. And then um, because I was thinking, well, one, I'm out of criminal law now. I was in uh, healthcare policy work. And then I also thought, you know, if I'm in criminal law, I fight the man. I'm not the man. And so but I thought about it more. And at the end of the day, I obviously newsflash, I did run against the uh, elected DA and, and, and we won. And the reason I ran was I thought we needed a new type of district attorney. We needed a district attorney who focuses on community safety, not focusing on, you know, trials to convict people to get long prison sentences. It should be about community safety. Sometimes we seek long sentences when I determine nothing else will work for community safety. But the goal always needs to be what is the intervention that will maximize um, the safety in our community. So that's what I seek to do. And 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 here's where it really comes down to. Here's where the, the I think the nut of the difference between public defense and prosecution is when I was a public defender, I would see injustices all the time. And I would uh, fight to right that wrong. I would go to the deputy district attorney, plead my case. You know, many times they would, you know, that would be successful, right? If you have a open-minded deputy DA who's empowered by their boss to do the right thing. You can do the right thing right then. But uh, when that didn't happen, you'd go to trial and sometimes you'd win a trial and sometimes you lose. As a district attorney, when I see an injustice, I write it immediately with the stroke of a pen. Every time I see an injustice, I can write it. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that I catch every injustice. And I'm not, you know, you know, that my hubris is not such that I think I'm always right. But the privilege and the power to see an injustice that you believe to be an injustice and you can fix it. Wow. That's uh, that that's pretty powerful. If we had every DA in the country who had, uh, you know, I think the, the sense of justice that, you know, Matt Ellis has. We'd see quite an impact on the criminal justice system. So that's what that's what I try to do every day. And it's a privilege and I enjoy doing it. Hey, John, um, <coughs> this is Eric. Um, one of the things Bob and I talk about quite a bit is power structures and incentives. And you were just talking about growing up in New York and you mentioned Serpico and you mentioned, uh, you know, police officers and one of the most popular shows of all time, Law and Order, describes, you know, the relationship between law enforcement and district attorneys. And so I'm curious, both you and Matt, John, because this is something Bob and I have talked about before. Um, and given why you ran for these roles, I mean, how do you each structurally consider your, you know, relationship with law enforcement as a part of your obligation as district attorney? It's, I think it's the key question. It's, uh, it's, it's challenging. And uh, I think as, as implicit in the question is, how do you view the relationship? And it, it has to start with that, that um, I'm not the cop's attorney, right? I rely on the police to investigate crimes. But at the end of the day, I have to be the decider and I have to be willing to uh, make decisions that will occasionally upset the police. And uh, many district attorneys um, have difficulty with that. Now, I have difficulty with that. So I guess all district attorneys have difficulty with it. But are you going to do the right thing even when it makes you uncomfortable? Like, I'll tell you this, there are hundreds, maybe it's a thousand times now where I've had a case, I've looked at a file, the investigation's done. I tell myself, okay, if I decline to charge this, here's what's going to happen. Um, the victim's going to you know, be upset and, and blow up my phone. The media is going to blow me up. The cop who investigated this is going to blow me up. Half my office is going to be you know, screaming at me. It's going to be my life will be hell if I dismiss this case. Okay. Is it right to dismiss this case? Yes. Then you do it. But knowing that if you do something, your life will be miserable. That's hard to do it every day. And I get why people, even in their heart, if they want to do it, they don't. And so you need to have thick skin, you need to have a backbone, and you need to know why you're in the job. It's not to make friends, and it's to deal with the 
negative repercussions of doing the right thing. And, and I get why most people are unable to do that. It's a good question. I'll piggyback a little bit on what John says and add, and add some to that. I've, uh, I've, well, I've definitely, my skin has grown, grown infinitely thicker over the past year and a half or so since, uh, since I got elected and uh, took office. Um, but I think John hit the nail on the head there. He said, uh, what is the right thing to do here? And sometimes that is to dismiss the case. Sometimes that is to uh, ch change the, uh, the recommendation. Because the, when we get reports from the officers, they, they recommend the charges. And then it's our job to either go with those recommended charges, change them, not charge the case. Or, uh, and there are rare instances where we charge it harsher than was recommended. Um, but that's what our job is to do is to review that, the law and make the right decision on what we receive from the police uh, to make those charging decisions. Um, I, I guess one of the advantages that I have that some of the, that John and some of the other DAs have, don't have in the larger counties is that with the smaller counties as the population, and we're, I guess, uh, more of the, on the larger side of the smaller counties, more, more medium size, but uh, I, I have a lot of the officers coming into our office frequently. And I, when I took office coming in as a defense attorney is that, that they all, all they knew me was as a defense attorney. Um, I, I told them I'm going to be completely transparent with you. So if I am deciding not to charge a case, I'm going to tell you why. And I'm giving all my deputy DAs in my office and every one of my deputies is also prior and previously a criminal defense attorney in some capacity. I gave them prosecutorial discretion. I said that we, everybody was hired here for a reason. Every one of you has the prosecutorial discretion to use it, and I will back you on it. And I've had, I have received those phone calls where uh, there's somebody, uh, an angry officer about who's not happy about uh, how a case was charged or if it was not charged, uh, whether it's by me or one of my deputies. And um, that line of, having that line of communication open that might there, there might be anger in the moment, but I, I definitely had the conversation after having a pretty heated discussion over the phone with an officer, having it end with, well, I, I appreciate you taking my call and explaining it. And I think that that and to be to hear that gives you a bit more uh, ability to make those right decisions. Uh, the, because the pressure is is more on you to make those to, to make those right decisions. And not uh, not cave into that pressure because um, I think that there is a level of respect that you get for making those tough decisions and then and then walking in the front door when you do with with law enforcement. Matt, and, I mean, I'm sorry, finish your point, but I want to follow on that. Okay, um, that, so that's that 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 that's that that's how I've approached it over the last year. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I, I, I'll just, I'll, I'll let John go, but every time we have to make one of those decisions, it's, it's always, is this the right decision? And that's how you sleep well at night. Go ahead, John. You know what, Matt, you just really hit it on the end when you said, you know, take it head on. Law enforcement's kind of a bro culture, right? Maybe we need to de debroify police. I think we do. But right now it is bro culture. It's kind of like, it's masculine, it's guys, it's driving cars fast, it's shooting guns, right? And it attracts a, a certain type of person. And when you are direct, even when it gets heated, um, there's respect for that. And also when they see you do it both ways, like I get pressure from criminal justice reform advocates to do something. And usually I do it not because of the pressure, because that's who I am, but every now and then, uh, I won't do it, not because I'm afraid to do it, because I don't think it's the right thing to do. And so when it, it takes a while, but when cops see every now and then I, I stand up for a cop who's getting attacked by some group on the left and they're like, well, shit, you know, almost stood up and, you know, they would say, I mean, I wouldn't use this term. Hummel told that group to F off for us. You know, he's. I respect that. And so even though they disagree with me many times, there's a level of respect now. And and you you earn that if you're direct. I, I've seen in some other jurisdictions and not in Oregon, because there's only three of 
us who are progressive, but in, in some other jurisdictions around the country where there's a progressive DA who doesn't, they, I have someone in mind, I'm not going to share who it is, but isn't taking it directly head on. And when people don't know where this person is coming from, then the cops will eat them up, right? And so they, they're they kind of militaristic with the chain of command and the DA is on top. And if you call a cop in, you explain why you're doing it, you treat them with respect, even if they disagree with you, there's a begrudging respect and I think you can get stuff done. But I think this is really helpful to kind of set the stage for uh, this next question is, um, you know, Eric and I talk often about the criminal justice system structures or the criminal legal system structures and sort of what the roles are in the system as a way to help demystify, because there's just so many moving parts. And unless you're doing this work kind of day in, day out, it's hard to understand how those parts kind of work together or not work together. So could you kind of talk about like, what is the role of the DA? You talked about it being like the most powerful actor, Matt, like, what does that mean? And you know, in like a county, right? Uh, uh, well, I guess talking about also a little bit about like your funding, right? It's different from public defense where it comes from the state. You know, uh, you know, DAs are from you know based in the county per county or whatever. But although there's some state funding there, but um, but just talking about some of those structural aspects, and then you know, how does that relate to other public? You are an elected official. So what does that mean for your relationship with other elected officials and how you work with them in sort of the jurisdiction you're in? Because you could have multiple mayors, right? You could have uh, multiple legislators that are in your sort of jurisdiction. Like, how does that all, what, like, I guess, just to, can you talk about that a little bit? Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so first of all, I guess we'll start with the with the role of the district attorney. So. Our, our, our job is, and we are, Oregon is one of those states that elects DAs, and I'll say not every state does that. Um, up When I worked up in Alaska, the uh, system was very different in that the DAs, there's not, there's not counties in Alaska, there's boroughs, um, but uh, the district attorney is actually appointed by the governor, and then they assign uh, district attorneys to each individual office, which would be like Anchorage, Fairbanks, Juneau, uh, Ketchikan. Uh, all the all the smaller s- towns or cities in Alaska that have offices, they get they get they get appointed to those, so that there's not elections for the, for the district attorneys. Whereas here in Oregon, each county has its own elected district attorney, and there's 36 counties. And our job is to as mentioned earlier, we uh, take the reports from from law enforcement, whether whether it be one of the agencies like uh, Oregon State Police, the county sheriff, uh, one of the city police uh, officers. Um, and uh, we uh, we take those and we're the ones who make the charging decisions. Uh, we bring charges. We we uh, send those to the court. The court uh, creates a charging instrument. The person gets called into court for the arraignment. And then that's when they get appointed a public defender or if they hire their own attorney, uh, they uh, they'll, they'll bring in their own attorney that they hire for those for those charges. And that's when negotiations and uh, possible settlement happens. I'm, I'm skipping a lot a lot of stuff here just to not get in too much into the weeds, but where it comes where we have the most power is because we are the ones who make those charging decisions. We are the ones who make the decision to give an offer to uh, a defendant or dismiss a case, or if we're, uh, there's, if we're not giving an offer that uh, we can give an offer that would resolve it fairly quickly um, or, or uh, if it's a serious case by lowering the charges, or we can give what I know that everyone's as a defense attorney heard is the go to trial offer, which is just like, you know, plead to the sheet or else, you know, go to trial on this kind of thing. Um, so we have, all, we're the ones who basically control the system. And um, in the way that it is set up at this point, we, as the elected district attorneys, the way we dictate policy to our deputy district attorneys and, and how they're going to handle their cases. It uh, creates a system where we have more power than the judges or the defense attorneys in, in the criminal justice system under the way it is currently set up. So uh, it, it, it is an, an amazing amount of power for these 36 uh, elected DAs. Um, and um, that's, Bob, what was the next part of your question? I'm sorry, I got off my little ramble there and I forgot what the next part was. Well, no, I think that's great. I mean, the other sort of, over the next couple of minutes, if like you or John want to talk about as an elected official, like what, what does that mean? Like in your sort of relationship working with other okay. elected officials, because you already talked about like 
three different law enforcement jurisdictions that you may have to work with sheriffs, you know, police and Oregon State Police. But I wonder, like with mayors and county commissioners and other Oregon legislators, like there's politics then that becomes sort of involved. And I just yeah, just talking about like that a little bit. Right. So the most direct is definitely from with our county commissioners, because uh, even though John and I are elected officials, so the state pays the elected official salaries, uh, the uh, our, our office is funded by the county. So everybody that works in my office is a, a Wasco County employee. That includes my attorneys, my support staff, my victim advocate. So uh, our county commissioners set our budget. So if I want if I want to have another attorney, because I don't think I my I, I think that the caseloads for my attorneys are too uh, too high, and I want another attorney, I, I have to write that into my budget proposal. Give that to the our three county commissioners, and they're the ones who will approve increasing my budget or, or not doing that. So they, uh, our relationship with our county commissioners is very integral to how our office runs um, with, the, with the mayors as well, because they're the ones who do some of the uh, funding with the, uh, the city police. So uh, in our case, uh, because they're, the city of the Dallas does give us a little bit of money uh, each year because they eliminated the Dallas Municipal Court, which which used to handle a lot of the misdemeanors that would happen within the city limits of the Dallas. But since all those cases started coming through the Wasco County District Attorney's Office, the city of the Dallas would handle that. So that that would go to the, the mayors. Um, with us, though, we only have one decent sized urban area in Wasco County, a lot of more rural ones, whereas John might have, have to deal with Redmond and Bend. Uh, so he has to deal with more than just uh, one city's mayors, but as far as the uh, municipal courts or um, cases coming in. Um, so, and with with our legislature too, we I, I know I've had phone calls with some of the elected officials uh, from our uh, local area about uh, certain pieces of legislation that involve criminal justice. I've definitely at least talked to one of John's elected officials down there and Ben about some other pieces as well because. It's, we also have to uh, some of the legislators, some of our own legislatures from our areas may not agree with us, but somebody else from a different part of Oregon would. And they want to they want to talk to district attorneys around the state about criminal justice legislation going through Salem. So uh, I've definitely talked to legislators from uh, both Eugene area and the Bend area uh, and the Portland area as well, not just the ones that are here locally. Yeah. Um, jumping off of that legislative piece. Um, you mentioned there are 36 district attorneys in Oregon. And I think, John, you mentioned earlier, there's only uh, three progressive um, district attorneys. There's an association, the Oregon District Attorneys Association, that I'm sure has been along for some time. I have no idea when it was created. But in my experience, kind of at the statewide policy level, when I jumped in, it seemed as though that was the most powerful organization in the state um, regarding criminal justice policy until I'd say about 2015 or so when everything really started shifting. Um, and that association, um, you know, structurally, you can see why it has so much power, because as you said, there's 36 DAs and only 30 senators. And so I think oftentimes, you know, they do rely on their experts in their communities for advice on how to enact criminal justice policy. But, you know, we saw um, several legislative sessions in a row of kind of criminal justice reform bills come through. Um, but that has kind of stopped the last year or two in the legislative session. And, you know, we've also seen some um, changing media narratives about how Oregonians view um, criminal justice reform. And specifically, there was a poll um, that ODAA conducted um, that was, I think, talked about in the media a couple weeks ago. And so um, I'm wondering if you, John, can kind of talk about ODAA as an institution, you know, what its role is um, as a way to lead into this discussion about that polling, because you can tell if they haven't had power for the last six, seven years, if there is a shifting media landscape, there's a, a way for ODAA to recapture that power. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great topic to discuss. The, the District Attorneys Association, I don't know when it was founded either, but it's been around for you know a long time. And as you, as you rightfully suggested, I think they were real super powerful in, in Salem until you know, about 2015. And I think that they jumped the shark and primarily because there was some uh, 
outspoken members of the association that, let's say, weren't super tactful in their negotiations with legislators. And and I think the legislature just basically cut off ODAA because there were a few, uh, you know, some bullies in the ranks who were, you know, speaking for the association in uh, in not an effective manner. And so ODA was like persona non grata in uh, in the Capitol for a few years. But to the association's uh, credit, they um, they kind of clean clean themselves up a bit, right? They have a good lobbyist. They have, you know, uh, a, a they're speaking with more of a, a unified voice, and they're playing off of the media narrative that we've seen in the last few years. And that narrative is that, you know, crime is run amok and that's because of, uh, you know, progressive criminal justice policies. Now, the data and facts don't back that up, but um, legislators know that they need to um, kind of uh, know where their constituents are if they want to win re-election. So ODA is playing into this national media narrative of criminal justice reform driving crime and feeding that to the legislators. And they're doing that in a more respectful, professional manner. And they're they're getting traction, um, to, to be honest. And and the a poll that they they I'm a member of the association, of course, but so a poll that the association commissioned um was kind of in furtherance of this uh, plan to kind of uh, scare the legislators into doing what ODA wants or the legislators will lose re-election. Now, the problem with that poll is uh, it's a completely, you know, biased push poll and the results should not be relied upon. But be that as it may, uh, ODA has some good talking points now from from this poll. And is anyone going to Dig into the details of the questions that were asked to see that they, they uh, the results should not be relied upon because the questions were biased. Uh, I hope so. I, I don't know if they will. Well, John, why don't we do some digging in there? So uh, we want yeah. this, this podcast. We can do that for them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I have a, a question too, just about the poll. Yeah. Like, you know, the Oregon District Attorneys Association. I think, in theory, right, thirty sixty is an association. I think. There is an interest for the DAs to be, you know, good public servants and understanding what are the needs of their communities and understanding how to be good elected officials as it relates to sort of community safety and public welfare or public well-being. Um, How much does this poll get to that kind of question as opposed to more kind of just what I've seen superficially, like more election talking points? Because... You know, when I was looking at it, I, it was hard for me to understand what the intent of the poll was. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that as you sort of have your own sort of constructive feedback or thoughts about it. Well, yeah. I mean, to me, we need to be asking ourselves in the criminal justice system, uh, what maximizes community safety, right? What can we do to maximize the chance that people will not commit crimes, And that has to be an individualized look at each suspect to see what the root causes of their criminality are and to determine what intervention uh, should be applied to that person such that they will not commit a crime in the future. And this poll doesn't get to that at all. And you're exactly right, Bob, that this poll just uses inflammatory language and and biased like push polling predicates to produce a result that would, would can be used by people running for re-election to say that more jail and more prison is the answer. And that, that's what the purpose of this poll is to help politicians who are running tough on crime campaigns to uh, you know be able to you know hopefully from their perspective be successful in their campaigns. The, the poll has nothing to do with, you know, what what can we do as a, a community in Oregon to increase community safety? Not nothing at all about that is addressed in this poll. It really seems to um, build on uh, the visceral emotional response uh, of people 
uh, with certain trigger words to, to, to get those reactions than it does to actually look at what are what what statistically can we show that would help make our community safe safer prevent recidivism and make us uh, all in all safer as a statement and within our own, own communities and there's just uh, the language used in this is so flawed that there's there's really enough i, I don't know if there's a single question that can actually be taken out of this poll that helps anybody um, actually get, get a read on what we need to do for people's safety. I mean, just one example. I mean, there's a million examples, but one, when you ask a question, hey, do, do you think, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I don't have the question in front of me, but do you think you should, uh, we should use prison for people convicted of murder and other crimes? Well, people might have a feeling that prison is appropriate for murder, and not appropriate for another crime. And so they'll say, yeah, prison for murder and other crimes. Why don't you break it out? And people, the question asked about um, pretrial incarceration of people who are suspected of committing crimes. And it said, do you think criminals should be held pretrial? Well, we all know that someone who's being held in jail pretrial is innocent. They're not a criminal. They're an alleged criminal. And, and there are, you know, every question had some variation of, you know, pejorative terms and uh, inappropriate combining of a serious crime with a less serious crime to produce a, a desired answer. So it's a it's a worthless. The, the answers that people provided are worthless because the questions were biased and were designed to be biased. Yeah, I mean, there's one question I'm reading. It says. In your opinion, has Oregon's political leadership, including governor, the governor and legislature, been too tough on crime, just right or too soft? Yeah, right. You know, right. It, it just reads as, um, you know, like uh, like one of those like media polls that you end up taking. So, I mean, I guess a more basic question about polling like this, when the District Attorney Association, because you have to pay for this and they're not cheap. Right. Um how do you how do you decide? I mean, you, you're both members of the association. I mean, you get to weigh in on this, how money is used for these types of polls or weigh in on the um, the the questions or well, because this 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 doesn't seem like it has anything that will help you do your job better, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Well, I mean, the board, the, the, the association has a board. Uh, neither Matt uh, nor I are, are members of the board. So the board makes these decisions. So the board met and decided to do this and they hired a pollster and they had input into the questions and the design of the survey. And that was a decision by the board and the money. This is important to know. Taxpayers paid for this poll because Oregon District Attorney Association dues come out of each county DA's budget. And so I have a, but the Shoots County DA's office has a budget. It's funded by the taxpayers. And then I pay uh, dues. The, the Shoots County DA's office pays dues to the District Attorneys Association. So those dues are used um, to, to pay for this poll. And it is interesting. You know, some DA's on the board are running for re-election. So those board members design a poll that arguably will help some of those people in their reelection efforts and, and they use taxpayer dollars to do so. That's troubling to me. And those dues are based on the size of your county. So I think that uh, we, my county is classified as a medium county and John's county is classified as a large county. Uh, so uh, I just looked at the numbers. And so we, my office paid $33,310 to ODA for our membership and John's county paid uh, $8,270 to their uh, to ODAA for the membership in this poll cost uh, $15,000 out of those county dues that come out of this. And I, I just, I, with, as far as going into the weeds a little bit, um, the first question that the uh, people who took this poll were asked was whether you were a voter or not, or you're a registered voter or not. And the person said they were not a registered voter, the, the poll that that person was, that call was terminated. Um, so this was only done for registered voters. Um, the first couple of questions were asking about whether Oregon was heading the right direction or the wrong track about uh, city, be, city or county being safe. And one of the answers was about the same, but that was not offered by the pollsters. It was only recorded if the pollster said it's about the same. Um, 
there's uh, a lot of questions about defunding, which has not been, it's not even in the legislature right now. Um, that's not the defunding police or defunding district attorney's offices. That's, I don't think that's even been addressed in the legislature in this session or not. So that's, that, that was, that's a question that was definitely a political agenda type question because it's nothing with demon a concern at the moment. Um, there, uh, also pulls one of the, uh, the Fox news tricks on here where it says some people are saying, and it says some Oregonians are saying that jails are no longer effective in protect, protecting the public and preventing crime. So putting that trigger sentence in before asking questions about uh, holding people pre-trial and using the terms catch and release uh, when somebody's arrested and, uh, you know, ignoring that whether somebody is released, they actually have to go through arraignments and get conditions of release uh, prior to that. Uh, those, those types of uh, people getting released pre-trial before they've been convicted of anything. Um, I think one of my, the biggest things I was worry uh, that's concerning is that there was actually a question I noticed in here uh, that was said, would you support or oppose getting rid of all voter approved mandatory minimum prison sentences for adults who commit physically and sexually violent crimes and instead replacing them with, uh, with suggested ranges of prison sentences that a judge may choose to follow or disregard? So this question clearly hits at whether ballot measure 11 should be in there or not. And uh, it was an opposed, opposing um, was 47% and supporting was 35.6%. So that was, I'm sorry, just for, that was confusing, but opposing getting rid of mandatory minimums versus supporting it. There was a uh, question in a previous poll that ODA had conducted that was phrased completely different than a completely different answer. Um, I went back and looked up that question. I believe this poll was from, I want to say 2014, 15-ish. Uh, and the question about ballot measure 11 was asked, would you support or oppose the legislature replacing all violent felony mandatory minimum prison sentences with discretionary, discretionary sentences, which provide judges with suggested ranges of years for various crimes, but allow defendants and prosecutors to argue for shorter or longer sentences? So the more, and that one actually had um, 58% supported that. So the exact, the exact same question phrased differently had a, a completely opposite result for, um, for the poll. So, that, uh, so it really depends on how you phrase questions about how, what, what the kind of results you're going to get. So Previously, with a question that was asked open-ended and mentioned that judges can make these decisions on sentences and have both the chance for the state and the defense to argue for a sentence, people are in favor of that. But the way that they, were, they phrased this question concerning ballot measure 11 on this most recent poll seems like people are more in favor of these mandatory minimum sentences and keeping that power within the district attorney's office and not with judges and uh, completely taking away the defense attorney to make arguments. So that's I, I, um... Matt, I, when I read this pool, um, you know, it just seems cynical to me. It, it used, um, you know, pejorative language like, you know, do you support defunding the police? I mean, you're talking about the legislature not taking that up. No one's taking that up. I mean, it's just an emotional tool to trigger the person to whom they're, uh, you know, pulling. Same thing with catch and release programs. It's all emotional. Um, but it's interesting to me that you mentioned um the measure 11 piece, the mandatory minimum sentencing piece, because this is something we've talked about before when we talk about our power structures and sentencing for a large swath of criminal felony criminal charges in Oregon, the judge really plays no role. And, you know, I kind of thought the closest we came to taking on ballot measure 11 was uh, last legislative session, 2021. Problem was there were multiple actors out there kind of competing with their own version on how ballot measure 11 should be addressed. And ultimately, um, none of them passed. You know, I thought Przansky's bill, which basically just converted the existing structure to discretionary, um, was probably the cleanest bill. But I mean, you know, from your perspective, do you see a conversation about mandatory minimum sentencing and ballot measure 11? Um, continuing or, um, you know, does it seem as though these conversations have missed their window? Uh, I agree. 2021 was a real good chance. And, um, 
Yeah, I, I see some legislators are a little gun shy because of the Portland situation that we know about. The media is really uh, latched on to, you know, some falsehoods there and some true hoods, I guess, some truths. Shootings have gone up, of course, uh, you know, uh, significantly so. Now, w- what's the cause of that? And, you know, I don't believe it's criminal justice reform, but that that's a reality that with the shootings uh, at, at the level they are in Portland, it strikes me that the legislature is, uh, you know, going to be reluctant to take on something as big as Measure 11 in the next year or two. But I mean, I think the fight has to continue. It's a, it's an injustice. I, my job should not be charging and sentencing. Like I want to be able to go in front of a judge and argue for the sentence I think is appropriate. I want the defense attorney to argue for the sentence they think is appropriate. I want the judge to weigh all the factors and make the sentencing recommendation that's most appropriate. I, I when I testified on you know one of those bills uh, in 2021, I said this to the legislatures uh, legislators there. I said, okay, picture this: in 20 years, in 20 years, there's a bunch of people camping at a campsite. They're drinking. It's dark out. A dispute arises, some sort of physical altercation occurs, and someone gets injured. What's the most appropriate punishment to give that person? Are you all as legislators sitting here right now, are you in a better position to determine the appropriate sentence now for an act that will happen in 20 years? Or is the judge in a better situation who will hear all the facts of the act, all the circumstances, everything about the victim and everything about the defendant. Um, the answer is obvious. It's the judge in 20 years. So it, it, if you know that to be true, you can't support mandatory minimum sentences because that's you as a legislator deciding now what's the most appropriate sentence in 20 years. So the, 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 tr- the fact that judges are better able to get it right is almost beyond dispute. The reality is people who support it don't care. They're out for vengeance and at all costs, damn the torpedoes, no matter what. And you know, so that's what we're up against. So we just need, uh, I think a majority of legislators support repealing Measure 11. And I think a majority of legislators right now don't have the guts to do it. No. You know, looking at this poll, and then I guess I have two questions, you know, just to ask you both about, like, and around the Measure 11 conversation and just criminal justice reform. One, like, how, you know, the criminal system is complicated. Like, it's not a simple system. Like, there are multiple actors, multiple systems at play. And you look at polls like this that oversimplify it. Like, how does that make your job more complicated in the sense of, you know, tools that are available to you to be able to like deal with individuals in your community that have committed harm, victim family members or victims, um, when this very simplified sort of presentation of the system is put out there. And then building on that, like when I look at stuff like this, it, it always like, it always discourages me that criminal justice reform uh, gets presented as a zero sum game. Like there are the defendants and then there's the state, the community, and the victims, and anything to improve fairness, equity, uh, dignity for individuals charged with crimes is somehow presented at a cost to the rest of the community and especially victims. And, you know, it's a paradigm that just is very frustrating to like have to navigate in. But I just wonder, they kind of are two sides of the same coin in some ways. But um, I mean, how does that make your jobs on a day-to-day level more complicated? But then you both have presented like, um, you know, your willingness and your want to like change the system to make it more fair. I don't know, Matt. Yeah, I think you just described the zero sum game is probably is the traditional model that we've been dealing with. And everyone's become so accustomed to that. It's hard to think of any other version of the criminal justice system. And um, when and I, I can tell you a couple of stories since I've taken office where I've actually sat down with victims and I said, like, well, here are options for sentencing. Like, 
I can send this offender who either like one case recently would broke into someone's house and stole a bunch of guns um, and, or somebody who was, who was a victim of a violent assault. And I said, like, like we can push this all the way through trial and uh, send this person, person to prison for this amount of months. Or the other option is you and I can sit down and we can talk about uh, this person being on probation for a very for you know three or five years, depending on how serious the crime was. And let's talk about what you would like want to see this person have as conditions of probation, uh, what you need is restitution, and go go through all of that. And it's been surprising that the majority of the victims when I've had this conversation have said, I'd rather see that probation sentence and see this person try to prove themselves. Uh, that and that be to be accountable actively, um, rather than just giving them a straight prison sentence. And prison prison's there, and if somebody can't hack it on probation and they keep violating, then they would go to prison uh, if they were to be revoked on probation. But the majority of the victims I talked to seem to want that 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 probation offer. And it was I, I I mean even as somebody who's considered a progressive DA, I was a little bit surprised that those that how those conversations have gone. And it's uh, it's not the people who are the victims of those crimes when they when they present with those options give that, but then you put out a press release about something like that, then all the, the public is automatically like you're being too soft on crime. It be it, it just falls into that narrative of you know if you're not punishing this person harshly enough, then you're being soft on crime and you're not the one helping the victims. When I you know we're the ones who are actually sitting down and having the victims in our offices and we're talking to them. So I, I think that this uh, this driven fear of that if you're uh if you're not seeking these lengthy sentences that you're being soft on crime is just um it, it's it's that it's that emotional reaction that we talked about earlier and it does make it more difficult and i think that the only solution that we really have with these types of things is to be open and transparent about what we're doing why we're doing it and that we are actually talking to victims and that we have and where the resources really need to go for offices are for victim advocacy so that the victims actually have those conversations with somebody in our office. Um, I, I think that, that it, it definitely, as you mentioned, it, it, it has made our job harder by having these uh, pigeonholed into harsher or softer on crime, because the reality is that we are still, even though we are prosecutors, we are being reactionary. We can only... Um, take the when a crime is committed, we're the ones who, who who are the ones who are getting it and prosecuting it. And the theory that hey, if we're being tough on crime, we're showing everybody that if you commit these crimes, that you're going to be we're going to deal with you as harshly as possible as a deterrent has for the past forty years been proven to not be that case. Uh, being harsh on crime does not cause deterrence. Um, trying to figure out ways to correct behavior is, is, a, is, is a deterrent. And until we start engaging in those conversations and stop having this, uh, this zero-sum game of that, what if, if we give something to the defense, we are losing something, it's not true. We can, we can work with our partners, with law enforcement and the judicial branch and the defense attorneys to figure out ways to do things differently, like having specialty courts that uh, involve diversions when somebody is, is, is with drug courts or mental health courts. Um, and then not just saying that we're going to hamstring somebody with a conviction, but we're going to dismiss this case if they take that accountability and they, they change their behavior. Uh, I've tried starting to use two different phrases around um, my community, and that's active accountability and passive accountability. Uh, active accountability is somebody who's going to show if they did something wrong, they're going to make it right by being active, whether that be making the money to pay restitution, making uh, doing community work service, doing doing the things that show that they that they realize they have done wrong and are accountable and are changing their behavior. Passive accountability is when they have to go sit in jail or in some cases prison. And those people are always going to be out there. There are people that there are, that there's nothing we can do with them, but send them into send, send them to a department of corrections for a very long sentence. And uh, I was just having a conversation the other day with somebody where I said that I can count on one hand on all my years doing defense work where I represented somebody that I was truly afraid of. 
that is such the minority of the people that any defense attorney deals with on a day-to-day basis. But those are the examples you will always hear in the media. And I'm sure John and I, if we had another hour or two, we could sit here and give you all the examples of people that we didn't charge harshly and they did make amends with account, active accountability and that they, those people should have their criminal convictions reduced or just ex, or, or vacated entirely because they deserve to move on in life. And I'll let John go since I'm, I know needs some water. Well, I mean, I, I, I care so much about victims of crime that I don't want them to be re-victimized. And so I focus on what intervention is going to maximize the odds that a person's abuser will not abuse them again. And if I feel that's uh, prison, then that's what I'll argue for. And if I feel that's something short of prison or jail, uh, that's what I'll argue for. And um, meetings with victims are, are um, I think, some of the most important work that district attorneys do. Every victim of crime, my, me personally, or, or one of my attorneys um, sits down with the person and, and explains and hears their input and considers it and then explains what we're going to ask for. Those are often heart-wrenching, emotional, there's tears. Sometimes, you know, there's yelling if, if the victim of crime doesn't agree with what we're doing. But um, anyone who says that, you know, a progressive prosecutor doesn't care about a victim of crime is is uh, ignorant or lying. We care very much about them. That's that's why I do this work to make sure that there are fewer victims of crime. Um, that's what I think everyone in the criminal justice system is focused on. And let me tell you this: as much as I care about victims of crime, and as much as I'm fighting for results that will make them safer. Victims of crime cannot be allowed to call the shots. Here's why. What if there's a victim of crime? Um, she was assaulted. It was a relatively um, serious assault. And the assailant was, you know, a rich white kid. And this victim says, you know, you've convinced me, Hummel, that uh, if we put this kid in this program, He's likely not to reoffend. I'm okay with it. Let's do it. Okay. Victim called the shots. We do that. Now, week later, there's a poor brown kid who committed an assault that was less serious than the assault committed by the white kid. And the victim in that case says, I want him to go to prison. Okay. Victims get to call the shots. That kid goes to prison. Well, I have a duty to ensure that similarly situated people are treated the same. And in that case, I would be sending a kid to prison who committed a less serious assault when I put the uh, the kid who committed a more serious assault into a program. That can't be. But I can tell you with certitude that many prosecutors allow victims to call the shots when it comes to sentencing. And that results in disparate treatment in cases uh, throughout the state and the country. That can't stand. You can be respectful, considerate, comforting, supporting, and, uh, and, and open to hearing from victims. Not only can you, you should, but at the end of the day, you as a district attorney, have to assess all the cases in your jurisdiction and be aware of all the data and be up to date on knowing what interventions work and what interventions don't work. And then you have to make those decisions, explain them and uh, be transparent about it and move forward knowing that you did the right thing. Um, I think that's it. Dealing with victims and how much weight to give victims input in cases is a, uh, a something that many DAs struggle with. I think it's under um, studied by people who are academics who look uh, who who work in the criminal justice reform field. And it's uh, it's a real important meeting. I, I think it's the, the most important work I do uh, dealing with victims and deciding the appropriate way to give their input. 
Yeah. I mean, we're just after an hour now, so I know we have to wrap it up, but you know, there's so many more questions. I think Eric and I would love to ask you and talk about it. You've raised like both of you, just so many good points at the end here, but um, I think, you know, the, the sense that I get is like, you know, it's, again, it's a complicated system. There are people's lives, you know, the natural way life is it's complicated. People's lives are messy and it's important to have, I think a system that has, people who are, you know, passionate and dedicated about this work, but detached and emotionally removed potentially from those situations to help make through a robust conversation, like what is the best thing for our community safety or community well-being? Um, that's when you have like a robust public defense, well-resourced public defenders, good district attorneys that can, you know, do the jobs they do, but also having an, a judge that's involved. So you have these different parties that are engaged actively in this conversation about like what is the best and having the flexibility to make like individualized decisions because no two people are alike and no two circumstances are alike. And that's kind of what I'm hearing from both of you is, um, you know, that oversimplification of these complicated things is, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't help anything. And I, you know, going back to this poll, that's the only thing that sort of keeps surfacing for me. It's like, why, I mean, I know why, but like, there's no benefit to like our community to, to trying to, you know, make these things so simple um, and avoiding sort of these complicated and messy um, situations or harms or, you know, however they may be. But um, yeah, if there was, uh, as we wrap up, just like in a minute, if there's like one thing you wish people knew about your job or about your approach to the DA uh, position, um, about the system, what what would it be? Like if you haven't communicated it already, but, it, or if you want to emphasize something again, uh, Matt? Oh, uh, so one minute here. I mean, I I will say that I um, I really ran on juvenile justice reform, and that this this really goes into some, one of the questions in the poll here about uh, uh, having mandatory minimum sentences for juveniles, and that that was one of the questions that was asked in here. And for those that don't know, uh, ballot measure eleven has been removed for juveniles. It used to be an automatic waiver for anybody who's charged with one of the crimes under ballot measure eleven for any kid who's fifteen to seventeen. And one of the things I'm most proud of that I've done is I've undone a couple of the wrongs that my predecessor has done to juveniles uh, by sentencing kids to adult sentences. Uh, we're hearing so much in the media about some of these just terrible crimes committed by kids. Now the governor is going to um, commutate them, but I got ahead of the governor in my, in my county. I uh, took... At this point now, I've done three kids that were convicted of assault in the second degree and adult sentences, brought them back here uh, under Senate Bill 819, which allows for resentencing with the adults, or I'm sorry, with the uh, the defense and uh, prosecutor with a joint motion from the DA and the defense attorney. And we resentenced those three kids to assaults in the juvenile system and put them in the Oregon Youth Authority. And those kids are now going to um, have a chance at life that they didn't have. And John mentioned, like, the, uh, you know, what about uh, the different disparity between, uh, you know, a well-to-do white kid versus a, a kid, kid of color that had, um, that came, that uh, has not had an easy time in life. And one of those, what, we had a, a kid of color who was, we had gone through the uh, juvenile dependency system, moving his mom, bounce around to foster parents, and then wound up getting charged with an assault down here at our local jail when he was in the program down there. And uh, then he just got thrown away by the system. And now he's going to be going to college and playing basketball. Uh, victim was on board with it. And it was, uh, that was one of the most rewarding things that I've done since I've taken office is, make, is making sure that we are treating kids as kids. That's great. And yeah, I wish we had a little bit more time to talk about 819, like a relief valve to some of these punitive sanctions, but um, some of the pros and cons of that. But John, anything you want um, people to know? Yeah, well, th thank you both for having me. And what is going to sound a little hokey, but when I walk into work every day, uh, I walk up the three flights of stairs. Matt's been in my office. We got a, it, it, these are long flights of stairs. I don't take the elevator, though, because I use that opportunity to walk up and and I, I kind of say to myself, look, um, I'm here today to ensure justice is done and I'm going to work hard to ensure justice is done and to make Deschutes County as safe as possible. And that's it. And I'm going to do that, um, whatever it takes, 
I'm going to do it ethically, transparently. I'm going to do it with my colleagues in the DA's office. I don't care about polling. I don't care about pushback. I don't care about, you know, people criticizing me. I don't care about people praising me because you can get sucked into that too. I'm just going to do what needs to be done to ensure justice is done and to shoot counties as safe as possible. So all my constituents know that's what I do on a daily basis. It's been an honor to do it during my seven plus years. It's a privilege. And, and, uh, and, and I've got uh, 10 more months and I'm going to be working my tail off every day to ensure justice and community safety. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, John and Matt. And hopefully we'll have you back again because there's you know at least about five or six more hours of uh, questions and conversation that I'd like to have with you. But um, really appreciate all the work that you do and you know coming in. Um, you know, just for you know transparency, our organization is engaged both with John and Matt on some work. Um, so it's been uh, I think great collaborations and partnerships and sort of reimagining you know how you know as you say we can achieve justice for for people who've been wronged by the system. I mean, Eric, any last thoughts? No, this has just been um, fantastic having both Matt and John on to talk about their roles because, you know, you and I have both talked about this, but to actually have people on the ground who do this day to day is a different perspective than we've had before. And look forward to next week. I'll get back to the grind of trying to manage the state's public defense system. And I'm sure we'll have an update next Thursday. But yeah, um, a lot of issues right now. And the, the latest issue is Washington County. So we'll probably talk about that. Yeah, we'll get back to some of the news items and kind of catch up from this week. And then getting back to our, uh, you know, mandated uh, trailblazer banter, John and Matt informed me or informed us that uh, they're t- hardcore Timber fans. And, uh, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about that either. But, um, you know, all sports fans all around, uh, good teams here in Oregon. Not to say that I'm not a Timbers fan, but, uh, you know, the the the, tip, the trailblazers are the things that uh, that sort of warm the cockles of my heart at this point. So we could talk about how Valeri did not get his appropriate retirement. He needed a better send off, and it's super sad. <laughs> right, I, 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 I can't talk about that yet. That, that, that still hurts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, um, and we'll see you next week, where we're going to be talking to Juan Chavez, the director of our civil rights project. And we'll be talking about uh, the Department of Corrections, prisons, and our organizational uh, lawsuit that we have against the Department of Corrections as it relates to COVID. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This is Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bob Singh. And I'm Eric Feature.